And yes, it's labor and love. As usual, we try to bring a variety of things to the table. So that last one we played was Zorba the Greek, of course. Before that, we had Nina Simone, or earlier at the station, the regular station. it. <coughs> a little later, later on in the show, we'll play something a little more topical, which joined in civil rights movement. Called her a priestess. Series. topic of this week's show is happening because I, I was lucky enough to go to uh, Hawaii on occasion for a wedding. <coughs> By the way, much love and best, best wishes of As this is my one, I sort of started doing a little research, reading, talking to, finding out about the local working Well, it's a hard one. Lots of victories as well, so we're going to talk a lot about Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else works for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, negotiating table, that is where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let Of 
radio where the labor meets the road. Of course, they don't want you to have a union. <laughs> where the money is, take what you want. Less, less what you produce, that workers produce, selling it. or producing <laughs> pardon me who have we got today on background <laughs> welcome to labor and love we're going to start out with our radio labor labor Worldwide labor In the report this week, an international accord on health and safety for garment workers has been extended to Pakistan. The global campaign for social justice. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. For every stitch of clothing, someone sweats away unseen. All the tangled threads of justice. Unravel at the seams From the slums of New York City To the streets of Bangladesh Hundred years of struggle It ain't over yet This is Radio Labor If you look at the achievements where more than 90% of factories are covered by the accord. And accords have covered factories in Bangladesh. Workers can go to work in the mornings knowing that they are safe in their workplace. That is Alke Bosager, the Deputy General Secretary of Uni Global Union. Uni represents 20 million workers employed in the skills and service sectors of 150 countries. Ms. Bosinger was referring to the International Accord for Health and Safety in the Garment and Textile Industry in Bangladesh. The accord was negotiated between major clothing brands, Uni, and the Global Union Industrial after the 2013 Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh, which killed more than 1,200 mainly young women and wounded 2,500 more. The international accord has been extended to Pakistan. I asked Ms. Bosiger what the accord will do in Pakistan. The international accord in Pakistan is going to be based on the experience in Bangladesh. And of course, they're going to adapt the program to the circumstances of Pakistan. One thing that we're going to do different in Pakistan from the Bangladesh experience is that the wronging right from the beginning with the global stakeholders. In Bangladesh, we reacted to an emergency situation, and or the, uh, the the program in Bangladesh has been transformed into a tripartite organization over the past year. In Pakistan, we have been working with the government, with the local industry, and other stakeholders who are in the past year to put together a program that includes them in terms of defining the parameters of this program. And at the end of last year, we agreed together with the brands that are signatories to the International Accord. We will expand the program into Pakistan and we will continue to do factory inspections just like we did in Bangladesh. We're going to run a worker compliance mechanism where workers can complain about issues that they find in the factory. 
and a very important element are going to be training programs that we're going to run for both factory management and workers so that they will have a voice on the job and the health and safety of workers is going to be in their own hands. The accord in Pakistan is legally binding. How does this work? The international accord that brands and unions are signing is the actual legally binding agreement. And based on that legally binding agreement between these two parties, we took a decision that we will extend the program so that legally binding nature is in the international accord. It's not uh, specifically only in Pakistan. And uh, there's an agreement that has been signed between these parties where the brand leads certain commitment in terms of what obligations they have, what they're going to do to work with their factory to make them comply with the requirements of this program. And as unions, it's our job to make sure that the brands are meeting those commitments. Are there plans to extend the international accord to other countries? We did capability study with a number of countries and concluded after uh, intensive research that Pakistan was the country that merited the first expansion beyond Bangladesh. And that's based on a number of factors. First of all, the environment that we find in the textile and garment industry in the country, it's also the country that most of the brands were interested in, whether it's a big buying volume from, from brands in Pakistan, but also the fact that both government and local industry were showing a significant interest in having the uh, court come into Pakistan. Those were all important factors for our decision to first go to Pakistan. But that doesn't mean we're not going to expand to other countries. There will be discussions that will have to be had by the hearing committee, but for now we're going to discuss with our work on Pakistan. I am surprised to hear you say that the government and the employers in Pakistan welcomed the accord. Is that because they saw that it helped the employers and government and workers in Bangladesh? But there are a number of factors. Definitely, I believe that the, the industry in Pakistan had seen how the industry in Bangladesh has been transformed, how the purchase and volume from Bangladesh has gone up, and really Bangladesh, I would believe, you can see it, it's the number one destination now for a brand. Can this tell us all this going hand? There's another issue coming up, which is the renewal of the trade benefits that they get with the European Commission. So that's another factor that the government definitely will be factoring in their discussions. But also, in terms of an economic interest of the country, both the government and the industry, it just makes business sense because particularly European brands are under increasing pressure the due diligence legislation requiring them to be a lot more responsible among the supply chains. And they know, as a country, if they want to be competitive, if they want brands to choose Pakistan as a destination, they will have to comply with requirements. And a very huge way to do that is the accord. February 20th is the International Day for Social Justice, a day set aside to remind the world that the struggle for equality, decent work, social protection, and more is ongoing. The day to recognize the need for social justice was created by the International Labor Organization. The ILO is the UN agency focused on matters of work in the world. To commemorate the day, the ILO produced a podcast featuring the Director General of the ILO, Gilbert Hungbo. Mr. Hungbo is the first African to hold the position in the ILO's 104-year history. 
The host of the ILO podcast, The World of Work, is Sophie Fisher. If you desire peace, cultivate justice. This phrase is written into the foundations of the ILO, literally. It's on a stone in the foundations of our first building, our first headquarters in Geneva. It refers to justice in the broadest sense. It means justice in life for humanity. In other words, social justice. Rarely in the ILO's 100-year history has the lack of social justice been so clear as it is at the moment. On top of the legacy of COVID-19, we're facing several overlapping and mutually reinforcing crises. Geopolitical tensions, economic instability, growing inequality and the effects of climate change. Together, these pose existential risks that are too large for any one country to solve by themselves. This is a special edition of the ILO's Future of Work podcast to mark World Day for Social Justice on February the 20th. And our special guest today is the ILO's Director General, Gilbert F. Hongbo. Director General, welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for coming. Oh, thank you for organizing this. My first question to you is that since you took up your post of Director General last autumn, you have made the campaign for social justice a priority. And while times are particularly difficult now and the need is particularly obvious, the lack of social justice is not new. So why does it particularly matter now? Yes, you're right that um, social justice is not new and the needs um, are not new. But quite frankly, if you look at the, the last few years, the situation is worsening. Um, on one hand, all of us are very amazed about the potential of wealth creation um, driven by technology, a lot of opportunities. We have the 5-10% of the richest in the world that sees their wealth keep growing. Then on the other hand, when you talk about 50% of the world population with zero social protection, with zero protection, you have more than 200 million people, workers, that are remaining poor, despite 40 hours of work. When you talk about social justice, what do you actually mean? Because it's a very broad term, and it can mean all things to all men. It's true that it, uh, it's quite very broad. To be honest, I believe we can spend hours trying to have an agreed definition of social justice, which doesn't exist. There's no international, very specific uh, definition per se. But let's just apply our common sense. For me, the very important thing is really fighting against inequality, discrimination, ensuring every human being should have same opportunity. You know, equal access to opportunities for me is quite important in social justice. And therefore, having decent work, a dignifying work, having a minimum protection, what I will call the protection flaws, access to water and, and sanitation, access to education, and for me, it's part of the social justice. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top stories section included links to coverage of how unions are marking the first anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine, the second anniversary of the military coup in Myanmar, and we also covered a new escalation in the Tunisian government's attack on trade unions. 
We have coverage of demands for an end to anti-union violence, including the assassination of trade union leaders in East Swatini, and a new round of police raids on South Korean union offices. And on a more positive note, we had coverage of a huge demonstration by Portuguese teachers demanding respect for their profession from their country's government. On our Working Women page, you'll find news about the European Union's ratification of the Istanbul Convention and what this means for working women there. We also had separate reports on the current gender pay gaps in the United Kingdom and Australia, and a story about how the shortage of paper currency is affecting Nigerian sex workers. Stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week included the push to ban engineered stone in Australia. Silica dust from this material is being called the new asbestos by unions representing construction workers. We also carried news about a telemedicine initiative by a sex workers union in India that aims to reduce the incidence of sexually transmitted diseases amongst union members. And the surprise revelations, uh, surprise in quotation marks, of sexual harassment on Kenyan tea plantations that should not have surprised anyone. Our current quote of the week is a shot of the president of the Ukrainian Journalist Union as he reported on the challenges the union has faced over the past year and how it is preparing for the future as the war continues. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start reporting for Radio Labor. Now here are the low tide drifters with every stitch. That's it. Labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
labor and love feature. <coughs> forgot to mention Lumpen. Lumpen is a house band. a band and cut some sides a couple of Getting the limpin with three Bobby men. Thank you. 
The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. And I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? It's all in the air. I can't stand the pressure much longer. Somebody say a prayer. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. This is a show tune, but the show hasn't been written for it yet. Hound dogs on my trail, school children sitting in jail, black cat cross my path. I think every day's gonna be my last. Lord have mercy on this land of mine. We all gonna get it in due time. I don't belong here, I don't belong there. I've even stopped believing in. Don't tell me, I'll tell you Me and my people just about do I've been there so I know You keep on saying, go slow But that's just the trouble Washing the window You thought I was kidding, didn't you? Picket lines, school boycotts, they try to say it's a communist plot. All I want is equality for my sister, my brother, my people, and me. Yes, you lied to me all these years. You told me to wash and clean my ears and talk real fine just like a lady. And you'd stop calling me Sister Sadie. Oh, but this whole country is full of lies. You all gonna die and die like flies. I don't trust you anymore. You keep on saying, go Trouble, desegregation, mass 
Simone, of course, with one of her signature songs. Simone was born in 1933 in Tryon, North Carolina. Father was a barber and dry cleaner. Father was a preacher. Came up as did so many artists, demonstrating talent with the piano. She performed at her local church, concert debut, a classical recital, was given when she was 12. Simone later said that her parents, who had taken seats in the front, were forced to move to the back of the Seating to make way for the white people. So used to play until her parents allowed her back, in, back to the front. With the help of a scholarship, money raised by a music teacher, she went to Juilliard. We have studied in Minneapolis and accepted that year, but her family had relocated to Philadelphia. Expectation of an entry to Curtis. Low to her as rest of her life. Expected that her application would have been denied. Professor. Her job as a photographer's assistant. She worked at the company. Right now, I want to talk about present some material about workers in the island of Maui this week. And <coughs> I was curious about the unions in Hawaii. The unions in Hawaii are under very 
there still are the sugar cane and pineapple business has largely moved but service sector is changing feral Why am I talking about this? How can I connect all of this? <coughs> Labor and love. Well, the fact is that the whole history of Hawaii is, especially the white takeover of the American people, deposited on profit. White people who came to Hawaii and dollar cents. And by and large, they just took the island over. Nobody ever voted on it. Nobody ever they made the queen a prisoner, as you'll hear. All positive. Anyway, so here's the story. Called Raising Cain. Hawaii, Hawaii to you. Hawaii, Hawaii. I saw us in a dream. Now my tears are flowing. In the cane fields. Times was real hard in Japan. Country folks like us never get money. Crops no grow. And the emperor was spending money making Japan modern, not helping the poor people. Plenty people moved to the city. Somebody tell me I make good money in Hawaii. So I sign one three-year contract. I say goodbye to Hiroshima and promise my family to send money home. I told my mother I come back one rich man. But this no paradise. I know about hard work. But working on one small farm in Hiroshima, nothing like plantation work in Hawaii. Working for the sugar company is a dirty job. I used to dig ditch repair pipes for the irrigation, and I was a fertilizer man. My dad, uh, I wish I knew him more. All he did was go to work, 30 days a month, 10 hours a day. The planters used the clock as a way to discipline and punish and control the workforce. At 5 o'clock, the wake-up whistle blows. The plantation police walk through the camp shouting, Get up! We eat one quick breakfast and gather outside. The bosses take 20 or 30 out to the fields. Six o'clock, we start work. Some hoe weeds, some dig irrigation ditches. We plant cane, cut them, carry the heavy stocks on our shoulders to the wagons. At 11.30, we get half-hour lunch break. Then we keep working until 4.30. That's 10 hours of work. 
There's plenty of examples of workers who were beaten. I mean, the Luna, the overseer in Hawaii, uh, notoriously carried this whip they called the black snake, and they didn't hesitate to use this. One morning, mom overslept and didn't hear the work whistle. We were all asleep, my brother, his wife, my older sister, and myself. I was seven years old at the time. Suddenly, the door swung open, and one big burly Luna, the boss man, bust in, screaming and cursing. The Luna ran around the room, ripping off the covers, not caring whether my family was dressed or not. I'll never forget it. When they started working in the fields, men and women did hapaiko together. You know, hapaiko is you cut the cane first into about, you know, two foot length. And then after that, you had to pilot the long harvested sugar cane into bundles and they have to carry into the cane car. They had people, this is mostly women's labor, by the way, that were stripping the cane by hand, manually. Holy, holy work, they called that, stripping the cane. And they were bound up with, you know, uh, clothes all around their face, all around their hands and arms and legs. And the reason for that is that this cane stock would lacerate them. When you see what they wore, sometimes people are shocked because you think, my gosh, this is Hawaii, they must have been sweating to death. If you break your contract, the police come after you. They were recaptured and he deserted. Another guy recaptured and deserted. There was a terrific amount of desertion, which told you that people hated to work in this harsh community. So we work all day and come home to wooden barracks. My bed is one long shelf on the wall, stacked three bunks high. There's 20, 30, 40 men in one building. No froa, no privacy, no running water. Because certainly there was no idea in the minds of the planters that the people who were brought in, the Japanese, the Chinese, the Filipinos, would ever stay in Hawaii. They were to be on these contracts, and then they were to get out and go back to the country that they came from. They did not want them building roots here in Hawaii. In the early days, if you broke a wagon, they charged you $5. If you were late, $1. If you were drunk, $5. If you caught you gambling, $5. Every behavior that they want to impinge on, there was a penalty. So how am I supposed to save money? Okay, okay, I lose little bit gambling. Sometimes I drink too much on day off. I miss home. I'm lonely. No women here. I cannot go back to Japan, one poor man scarred by years of plantation work. So I stay in Hawaii, sent for one picture bride. Here in Hawaii, we count our lives by the clock. But you and I count on each other. You and I are hotter than Hale Mau Mau's burning lava. My dad came to Hawaii when he was 12 years old by himself. And then when he was about 28 years old, he got a picture bright. He looked at that picture, sent him over, and they were married forever. Not like today, you know, they think they love each other. One, two years, they divorced, but they were married until they passed away and uh, raised nine children. The matchmaker hands me an envelope and I rip it open. I pull out a black and white photograph of a man, so handsome in his suit. He stands in front of a house and looks so wealthy. 
Why would I marry poor farmer in Japan when I can marry adventurous a rich man in Hawaii? Well, majority of the women that I had interviewed who came as picture buyers came from farming agricultural background. And so the reason many of them came, of course, was the bachelors were here as the contract laborers. But the only way to get to Hawaii is if your family of an immigrant already there. Mr. Funakoshi, a well-educated man, very scholarly, he told me their marriage was arranged through a friend while working in the cane field digging. And then they said, oh, how about your daughter and my son get married? That casually marriages were arranged. It's a little scary to marry someone I'd never met, but I trust our matchmaker. He writes to both our family and asks all kinds of questions. They would really do a thorough investigation, make sure the water's pure in the village, no leprosy, no insanity. They would make sure that she's properly trained. The family will make the final decision about whom I marry, but it's still exciting when the picture arrives. When we agree to marry, my future husband send $400 to pay for my boat ride to Hawaii. Then we have our wedding ceremony. They have somebody standing in for the groom-to-be, and then they sip the sake three, three, three times, a total of nine sips. They have a girl dressed in pure white to serve the sake. Once that is exchanged, you're legally married, even if the husband is in Hawaii. And then the wife's name is put into the family register in the village office. And you're declared legally married. After I'm a legally part of a family, I have to wait six or more months before I travel to Hawaii. The boat I sail on is called the Mexico Romaru. There are several other picture brides on board with me. We each have a reason to travel so far to marry stranger. Some forced by parents, some run away from shame in Japan, and some curious about the far-away land. But all of us think we'll have a good life in Hawaii. My grandmother came from Japan, and so did my grandfather. My grandfather came first. And as most uh, men did, I think, they ordered picture brides. In those days, they thought going to Hawaii was quite an improvement. And when they looked at his picture, too, they thought he was a, such a successful man. So there were Japanese women uh, who became picture brides, not because they wanted to get married, but because they wanted to get to Hawaii and then to California. And then when she arrived at Honolulu Harbor, she was detained three days to take out any toxins or whatever disease they may have brought from Japan. But on the third day, they were released. She said there were six couples that got married by the Christian minister in a mass wedding ceremony right at the immigration station. But when ship docks, my dreams of palm trees and a paradise with my handsome husband are gone. Many of them were misled. Pictures of husbands who sent photographs from a decade earlier or of better-looking friends or of themselves in a suit in front of a big building when they lived in a shack. One lady shared about her grandmama who came to the immigration, met the man she's intended to. He had sent a picture of himself when he was 25 years old. He was now 45. 
She was only 19. Mrs. Sato, the picture bride from Okinawa, she was only 16. She said, actually, she didn't want to come, but her family was so poor, they had to get her to get married to come to Hawaii to better her life, and they thought the husband-to-be would help support her family. They heard from the early contract laborers, Hawaii is really paradise, and the streets paved with gold, although it wasn't. They gave such an elaborate story because they didn't want to consider themselves failures. So early in the morning, with lunch on my shoulder, once more to do hore hore work, to put food on my table. They were the first ones up in the morning because they not only make breakfast, but they made the lunches for themselves and their husbands. Then they'd go out and put in a full day's work. Then they'd come home and they'd have to deal with dinner and all the other household things. So they're probably the last ones to go to sleep at night. Life in Hawaii is a horrible. I have a no kitchen. I cook outdoors on an open fire with one single pot. The water near the house is just a trickle. I work in the fields and take in other people's laundry just to make end meet. I work so hard that my hands are swollen and bleeding. I hated it. Because we didn't have washing machine. Everything was done by hand. We had to boil the clothes in the outdoor, galvanized, bucket-looking thing, and stir it, and we have to scrape off some bars of soap, and then make suds. It took us all day to do that laundry. And all that we got paid was $2. That was slavery. <laughs> and so we endure, gambatemashita. We build good marriages with the men we knew only from a picture. We work under hot sun in fields and in the evening. We earn extra money under kerosene or lamp. We raise a family and build a community. Gambatemashita. Stable community life meant more babies and families being formed. Many of them were thinking about staying in Hawaii you now because they had children born in Hawaii, and Hawaii had become their home. When you think about it, that's part of their Americanization. But that kind of reinvention would make them more discontent. In the early days, they could beat you to death, or they could imprison you, or they could deprive you of your house and deport you. Before the union, you can't do anything. No safety things, not until after the union came in the picture. And it's really a fearsome thing to have to do when you know that the other side's ability to retaliate against you is enormous. We was under contract like indentured servants. If we no work, our contract extended. So we did what folks call day-to-day -day resistance. Like the 5 a.m. whistle would blast, but there were workers who didn't get up. And there were workers who said, I'm sick today. They would fake illnesses. The way we agitated was go slow time. Don't go double time, work slowly. Secondly, arson, burn the cane field. And my father 
they would hide in the cane field. And you know what they were doing? Gambling. <laughs> and then the Luna would go and check the barracks where they were living, and they're gone. So the Luna would think, oh, these guys went to work already. The workers developed their own tools for trying to handle some of the problems, and certainly one of the best known that has survived is the Japanese women used to sing in the plantation fields. People singing while they're doing hard labor is something that you see certainly in the South, and we think of them as uniquely African songs that came from African music traditions. Likewise, in Hawaii, the Japanese women, in order to make the work a little bit easier to bear, would sing these songs. They were called Hole Hole Bushi, Bushi, you know, the song. And Hole Hole is actually a Hawaiian word for stripping cane. By 1905, Japanese the majority on plantations, like 70%. So when we wanted things to change, we rally together and protest. We stop working until we get what we want. Conditions at the camps got to be better. The housing got to be a little better. Sanitation got to be a little better. And then the next big move would be where you'd have multiple plantations on an island get together. And in 1909, they went out on strike. And it was an all-Japanese strike. At that time, we had what was called blood unionism. In order to belong to the union, you had to be Japanese. You had to have Japanese blood. All Japanese from all plantations on Oahu, we wanted the same pay as the Portuguese. During strike, you cannot live in a camp. you got to live in tents outdoors. But if we're not working, we no can keep our plantation house. So the camp police kick us out was horrible. They threw out pots and pans and furniture, piled everything all outside the house. They nailed doors closed so we could go back in. Fathers packed bags of clothes, mothers carrying crying babies. Children cry cause the camp police yelling. We walk miles into Honolulu and stay in empty buildings or camp in the park. The community pulled together. Women made soup kitchens, Doctors take care of strikers for free. Businesses give us money and free service. Japanese workers on the other islands keep working to send us money. The planters broke that strike, and then they looked elsewhere for another source of labor, and they turned to the Philippines. And I've come across memos where planters stated explicitly that they wanted to bring in so many Japanese and so many Filipinos in order to pit them against each other and drive wages downward. More and more Filipinos come to the plantation, but they live in separate camps from the Japanese. During the day, we work together. We all want better working conditions and better pay, but we stick mostly with our own people who talk the same, eat the same. But by 1920, there was actually sort of like, you know, a treaty where the Japanese union uh, leadership met with the Filipino leaders of the Filipino Federation of Labor to try to have a synchronous strike. It wasn't really a merged group. It was the two groups who were going to try to strike at the same time. We are laborers working on the sugar plantations of Hawaii. People know Hawaii as the paradise of the Pacific and as a sugar-producing country. But... Do they know that there are thousands of laborers who are suffering under the heat of the equatorial sun? 
is sealed and in factories and who are reaping with 10 hours of hard labor and a scanty pay of 77 cents a day. After the strike started, over 3,000 Japanese parade through Aala Park. Our leader, Noboru Tsutsumi, went fire us up. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been two months since the beginning of the strike. The Hawaiian Sugar Planters Association rejected our legitimate demands as workers and has attempted to misread the public with false propaganda. Ladies and gentlemen, today's parade is to expose the stubbornness of the HSPA and to inform the general public about our plea for justice. There are stories that we have in our oral history where the Japanese women who said as we were carrying our signs about what little amount we were being paid, they would look and see women on the streets, the Hawaii women, they said, who lived in the town, and they were crying to see how badly we were being paid. They had no idea how poorly people were being treated in the plantations. I saw a photograph of plantation workers on strike, and they were having a mass demonstration in Aala Park in downtown Honolulu. It was a huge, massive demonstration. It was just a sea of faces. But what stood out for me was also a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. Hawaii sugar plantation workers are still suffering under slave-like treatment. Free these slaves! Free these slaves! Free these slaves! Maybe they themselves hadn't heard the Gettysburg Address, but their children had, their children in school. And they realized that this country was founded, dedicated, to use Lincoln's language, to the proposition that all men are created equal. And so when they went out on strike in 1920, joining with the Filipinos, they were saying, we're Americans too, and we should have decent wages because this is now our home. There's a lot of hope that the inter-ethnic, international, interracial union can work. This turns out to be largely untrue within a couple of months. The best way for the planters to keep the labor disputes to a bare minimum is to have these two different competing ethnic groups or racial groups who distrust each other. And the greater the distrust, the less cooperation they will have with each other in terms of forming a labor movement. So what the planters did with the Filipinos was to sow the seeds of distrust. And trying to frighten the Filipinos into saying, oh, the Japanese, you know, they're going to take you over. And still the Japanese workers uh, lasted something like six months anyway. So it was a pretty prodigious effort. And the community expended a lot of its energy and capital in that effort. And so it was very difficult to get them going again for decades. The Chinese struck, the bosses would pull them by their pigtail early on and run them with horses. The Portuguese women struck alone. The Japanese struck alone. And they never could win the battle because one group would work in and the others on strike. Not until 46, when they harmonized all the ethnic group and they stood toe-to-toe -to -toe that they beat the plantation system. The real story of Hawaii's changing from that early past when you have racial unions into the period of multi-ethnic unions and multiracial unionism is the story of the ILWU. It was through this particular union, the International Longshoremen's and Warehousemen's Union, known as it was at the time, that we were able for the first time to get on a general basis sugar workers who could send their children to college. I heard about the dock workers who would start one union on the Big Island. They said, race no matter because we brothers under the skin. They talk to us sugar workers because they want to organize from the docks 
to the cane fields. On December 7th, 1941, but when Japan Pearl Harbor went bring us into World War II, martial law stopped everything. We no can change jobs, they went freeze wages, and the military was paid more for doing the same work as us. We worked together with everybody to win the war, but once the war over, we was ready to fight back against the plantation system. Jack Hall and the ILWU people would tell us what we already know. So we signed up and joined the union, worked for a little while trying to get a contract. Then on September 1st, 1946, we went on strike. And let me tell you, we weren't prepared for the strike, not prepared at all. And so for the first time, all of the units in the ILWU worked together. It didn't make a difference whether you're Filipino, Japanese, Chinese, or whatever it is. They gave their all in order to win the strike. You see, to prepare for a strike, you have hunting teams, fishing teams, soup kitchen. 25,000 workers on every plantation except one when refused to work. And after 79 days, we won one contract. This was a magnificent illustration of how people of different colors got together and worked to win the strike. Before the union started, people didn't have cars, people didn't own homes. After the union came in the picture, they own homes, they have cars, they sent the kids to college. We were so strong that they start to respect the union. That's the reason why we all got confidence and we're not afraid to speak up. showed our power in the fields and at the election polls. We elect pro-labor candidates. Now the hopes and dreams of our parents, grandparents, and early contract workers was coming true as we start for Bill on Hawaii that we can call home. Wellington, Premier Day, Lord of the Rings. 120,000 people lined the streets along a red carpet for the stars, hot sun pelting. New Zealand is the closest country to the ozone hole, so the sun... So there's the story of <clears throat> the way work was in Hawaii. Unions and in Harry Kamoku. There was uh, an incident, Bloody Monday. Dock workers at Hilo and Kawaihai Harbors on the Big Island had the day off today. The union holiday every August 1st marks an event in Hawaii's history that few of us have ever heard about. KITV4's Andrew Pereira has more on the 74th anniversary of the Hilo Massacre. It was August 1st, 1938. Over 200 protesters gathered at Hilo Harbor in a show of solidarity with ILWU workers in Honolulu who were striking against the powerful Inner Island Steam Navigation Company. 
a small army of about 60 officers armed to the teeth um, ended up uh, starting off with uh, uh, throwing gas at them, tear gas at them, and then hosing them. In 1988, Dr. William Pewitt published a book chronicling the event known as the Hilo Massacre, or Hawaii's Bloody Monday. They were uh, attacked by the police uh, with uh, shotguns, riot guns, and uh, bayonets affixed. Pewitt uncovered black and white film and photographs in the state archives that were set to be destroyed. The discovery led him to incredible eyewitness accounts. Well, I know I went down and I thought I'd get up and move away, you know, because I could hear the bullet whizzing over my head. The protest organizer, Harry Lehua Kamoku, instructed the crowd on the practice of passive resistance more than a decade before the civil rights movement began. They coached each other about what would happen if you were hit with a billy club, not to respond in kind, you know, uh, just to fall down. As protesters sat down, Sheriff Henry Martin gave the order to shoot. But it was his lieutenant, Charlie Warren, who was the enforcer. Because he began by bayoneting uh, one of the demonstrators, Kai Uratani. And then, and again, amazing he didn't die on the spot. It was very severe injury. As police officers and National Guardsmen unloaded, 50 people were shot and another 40 injured. Luckily, no one was killed. You can pretty much tell exactly when the shooting started because people began responding to it and falling on the ground. The shooting marks a dark point in Hawaii's labor movement, but led to many of the gains workers enjoy today. I think the union became uh, much more sympathetic in the eyes of the general public and the community uh, as a result of this. Andrew Pereira, KITV4 News. Fascinating to see that old film. Now, none of the officers involved in the shooting were ever charged. In 1924-16, Filipino workers and four police officers were killed on the island of Kauai. That incident is known as the Hanapepe Massacre. Okay, a little more, little more um, history there. How were the islands acquired? Taking over happened so many places all over the world. Nowhere was it so blatant. Hawaii. Story of Lily Okalani, the last queen. She was the first and the only woman to rule as the queen of the Kingdom of Hawaii. This was the first time that America took over a sovereign nation. Eighteen ninety-five, Honolulu, Hawaii. After her overthrow by American businessmen, Queen Liliuokalani was arrested by the provisional U.S.-led government and placed under house arrest. Liliuokalani was marched from her private residence to Iolani Palace, where she was locked in a bedroom suite and kept captive for months. To occupy herself, she stitched a quilt telling her life story, composed hymns. That first night of my imprisonment, 
was the longest night I have ever passed in my life. It seemed as though the dawn of day would never come. I am imprisoned in this room for the attempt of the Hawaiian people to regain what had been wrested from them. The queen was born Lydia Liliu Kamikaeha in 1838 at the base of an extinct volcano near Honolulu to a family of high chiefs and advisors to the king. Following Hawaiian tradition, she was raised by parents of higher rank than her own. Immediately after my birth, I was taken to the house of another chief by whom I was adopted. It is not easy to explain to those alien to our national life, but it seems perfectly natural to us. Lili Uokalani became part of the royal court of King Kamehameha IV, who ruled the Eight Island Kingdom of Hawaii for a decade, a constitutional monarchy modeled after the British system. It was a very, very strategically important point to the British, to the Americans, and to the Japanese. And there was a, quite a bit of wrangling in the 19th century over what countries should have control over the Hawaiian kingdom. Baptized as a Christian from age four, Lili Uokalani was educated at an English language school for children of the royal court run by American missionaries. The first American missionaries arrived in Hawaii in 1820, and their sons and grandsons went into the sugarcane business, buying up land to establish plantations. And there was active suppression of the speaking and teaching of the Hawaiian language. Lili Okalani showed musical talent early on. She had perfect pitch and played numerous instruments. In the late 1860s, she composed music that would be adopted as the national hymn of the sovereign nation of Hawaii. Later on, she would write Aloha Oe, which is still to this day probably the best known Hawaiian song. To compose was as natural to me as to breathe. My ancestors were particularly gifted as lovers of poetry and music, and yet there are few, if any, written compositions of the music of Hawaii except those published by me. Music was her consolation, and it was her opportunity to speak directly to her people. My name is Meliana Aluli Meyer. I'm an artist, educator, and student of all things Hawaiian. My great-grand-aunt was a lady-in-waiting, the confidant of the queen. I lead groups of youth and artists in examining not only history, but their creative visual voice. Native Hawaiians and others in the community respond to these murals in a very profound way because we're actually making visible aspects of pain and sorrow and loss to help people understand our legacy. Our murals depict who we are. In her 20s, Lili Uokalani went door to door to raise money to build Hawaii's first hospital. 
Queen's Hospital opened in 1860 to combat diseases brought by foreigners such as smallpox and influenza, which had decimated almost 85% of the native Hawaiian population in 50 years. In 1862, Liliuokalani married John Dominus, a white American raised in Honolulu and a commander in the royal court. She later turned her attention to philanthropy, founding a bank for women and setting up a fund to support the education of Hawaiian girls. After her younger brother, David Kalakaua, became Hawaii's king, he made her heir apparent in 1877. But the white business class ended up gaining much of the economic power in the islands, not only the plantations, but also the churches, the schools, and many other cultural institutions. More unsettlingly, Lili Ukalani started to realize that her brother's cabinet was filled with very corrupt businessmen. In 1887, white businessmen forced her brother the king to sign a new constitution that weakened the monarchy and removed the right of native Hawaiians to vote unless they were landowners. It became known as the Bayonet Constitution. Having matured their plans in secret, the men of foreign birth rose one day en masse and forced the king to sign a constitution which practically took away the franchise from the Hawaiian race. When her brother died suddenly in 1891, Lili Uokalani assumed the throne, becoming the first and only sovereign queen of Hawaii. With support from the majority of Native Hawaiians, she attempted to overturn the Bayonet Constitution. The Constitution she was putting forward was one that would have restored voting rights to Native Hawaiians and would have increased her powers as a constitutional monarch. But the white businessmen and politicians were already plotting her overthrow. Queen Liliuokalani became the target of what can only be described as a vicious smear campaign against her in the U.S. press. The San Francisco Examiner described her as a black pagan queen who wanted nothing short of absolute monarchy. A trap was sprung upon me by those who stood waiting, as a wild beast watches for his prey. January of 1893, a battalion of U.S. Marines marched through downtown Honolulu. They had a cannon and machine guns. Within 48 hours, the Kingdom of Hawaii had been overthrown, and a provisional government led by U.S. businessmen was in charge. It was essentially a bloodless coup Queen Liliuokalani traveled to the U.S. to appeal to the President and Congress to restore her to the throne. It would be very, very unusual for a woman of color to demand a meeting with not only the President, but many other people in Washington at the time. And so while she might have presented as a demure woman in Victorian-era modest clothing, 
she also contained within her the fierceness of the native Hawaiian goddess. I would undertake anything for the benefit of my people. It is for them that I would give my last drop of blood. President Grover Cleveland agreed the Queen should be reinstated. But Congress rejected that recommendation, and on July 4, 1894, American businessman Sanford Dole, whose family soon founded Dole Food Company, declared himself Hawaii's president and placed the Queen under house arrest for eight months. The overthrow caused trauma not only of a political sort, but a spiritual and an ethical sort because we sought to bring our queen back and reinstate her through laws and policies that we counted on. We even had a petition of over 37,000 signatures. So it's like being left with nothing except a shell of who we were. So it's taken a long time to rebuild. Lili Okalani is the reason we all do the work we do. And there are many of us everywhere, in education, in health, in advocacy for land. We are doing the work of the Queen today, bringing the culture back so that Hawaiians can thrive. Lili Uakalani was released in 1895. She spent the rest of her life advocating for native Hawaiian rights and culture. In 1909, she sued the U.S. government to return the 1.75 million acres of Hawaiian royal lands it had seized, but was unsuccessful. She passed in 1917, giving all of her monies to the children of Hawaii. You've got Gandhi, Mandela, King, all of these leaders. But before all of them, you've had women in the far-flung Pacific who is a leader for all in terms of peace, social justice, and righteous action for her people. Hawaii became the 50th state in 1959. In 1993, the U.S. Congress issued an apology acknowledging that the overthrow of Queen Liliuokalani had been illegal. Never cease to act because you fear you may fail. The true secret is to know your own worth. It will carry you through many dangers. Well, we sort of a patchwork thing we've done here today. Overthrow the land based
start with talk about the victory. Because <coughs> after the 38 massacre and some of the Oh, 
And that was the lumpen. <coughs> the lumpen you might ask. Oh, we're going to take a little break. Yes. How about the ginger Revolutionary party. Man. Their job was in the party. Phone call. Hello. Hi, Vita. Good morning to you. How are you doing? Okay, we're uh, today. Today's um, subject matter is was the uh, history of Hawaii of workers in Hawaii from China who went to work in the fields. Hawaii. We had a pretty good show. How how are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. Uh, you know, starting my day. Okay, um, I'm glad, so glad you called. I really appreciate your taking the time. And my question is one that I, uh, my attention was called to earlier with a, a teenage girl named Greta Thornburg. I don't know if you've heard of her. Yes, I do. And Greta Thornburg at one point, um, made this statement. I'm just wondering what you think of it. She said, in order for the earth to survive, the earth and people to survive, capitalism must die. Capitalism must die if the earth is going to survive. And of course, when we say the earth surviving, the earth is going to be here no matter what. It's, it's human civilization by the wayside. So what's your take on that? Is that something you believe? Is that something people around your age or people who are in in, um, university and in grad school are thinking about? I think that people do feel that way to an extent. Like, they feel the way that things have been going. I think because they have also seen the effects of, like, the greediness of the way things have been going people are open to the idea of not like having such intense capitalist competition for certain things like for example the environment or that those industries that deal with the environment 
So I think, yeah, that people are in general a lot more, uh, like, seeing things that way. I know I do because I think, you know, capitalism and being a steward to the environment are, like, two oxymoron like it's an oxymoron you know because being a cap unless you're a capitalist with certain rules and guidelines that you follow but some of the uh, premises of capitalism themselves a lot of the time are uh, just about worry about yourself don't worry about anybody else and yeah. don't worry about anything else but i mean there were people like adam smith who tried in the past to put things in place when it came to capitalism and social welfare to make things fair. And even the way we see capitalism now isn't like real capitalism because it's actually very like the government seems to act like a welfare state for big companies because they'll bail them out. But yeah. they don't let big companies fail and fall and be done so that new, better, innovative companies can step in and what they did wrong and so that's part of why our country doesn't have innovation either because we have like the same people who are just making money staying in the same positions and you know just you don't really move or change because no one wants to change because they're all benefiting from it yeah yeah the ones who are benefiting keep it going well spoken what you said the next you know you hear um Conservatives and uh, and um, you know CEOs and people you know the one percent always saying get the government off our backs, but mm. in two thousand eight when the housing market crashed, they all went and had conferences with the government, mm. with the people who were running the government at the time. This is between Bush and. They sure wanted government out. They wanted government at that point because, like you say, they were all failing. So, um, talk about collusion between government and capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been like that, I think, with several things, and especially with the healthcare industry, as we've seen. That's something that's sort of like the environment, you know, like. It's something that shouldn't really be taken advantage of because if it is taken advantage of, then it's going to negatively affect all of us. You know, so like even with healthcare, they've done a lot of weird things that it's like, oh, you know, like, but for big companies, you show a lot of favor, but for the normal people, you don't really do right by us. So I think that it's the same with the environment. Like, It'll benefit only a few people, but overall it's going to not benefit everybody at all. It's going to be bad for everybody. It seems like the environment is striking back now with all these extreme weather things. Like right now in San Francisco. I I grew up in San Francisco, right? I hardly ever felt it so cold for such a long time. I know. Yeah, anyway. there's uh, snow. There's snow in Oakland, Livermore. There's snow across the mountains here where I live. The yeah. mountains across the thing are all covered full with snow. Uh-huh. It's yeah, it's really crazy. And and then in Georgia or Texas, it's like 85 degrees, and that's a little out of character for them too. Right in the middle of the winter. Right. Right. 
Right. This is so. to say nothing of big storms, hurricanes. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Did, you, did you hear about the animals, too? That no. A lot of animals were just, like, in Mexico and then Australia, animals were just, like, sitting there and not moving, like, all over. And people were saying the animals know there's an upcoming, like, environmental event or something. Oh, I see. So they're, they're doing There's been quite a lot of videos uh, yesterday and the day before of all over the world on social media of animals doing weird stuff. I think they know a lot of things we don't. <laughs> okay, yeah. well, um, thank you so much for your time, Zika. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Okay, uh, talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye, bye Zika. So that was our, uh, our um, college correspondent. What happens You're talking about the lumpen. Where's the poop? Seriously. The Lumpen was composed of college students turned Black Panthers, Michael Torrance, Willem Calhoun, and Clark Bailey, as well as experienced Panther leader James Mott. Panther Chief of Staff David Hilliard named them the Lumpen, derived from the Marxian term for the social scum of society, the Lumpen proletariat. The members, as listed earlier, were by no means a part of this class. However, it was undoubtedly their target audience, with party co-founder Huey Newton describing his mission as organizing the black urban lumpen proletariat. To understand the history of the lumpen, it is important to have a basic understanding of the Black Panther Party itself, as well as the greater movement it was a part of. The Panther's overall goal can best be described by its 10-point program, which was first seen in the second issue of the Black Panther, the group's newspaper. Here is Gwendolyn Mercy Academy history teacher Carolyn Durstein to explain that program. The 10-point platform. So they create these, these 10 points. And I always love pulling number 10. I'm going to read it so I don't misspell, like, speak. Um, but it, they want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. And when you think about the juxtaposition of an organization whose platform is calling for peace but are carrying around huge guns, you know, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? Early objectives included housing and employment, as well as ending police brutality. It operated under the idea of black power, which civil rights icon Kwame Ture described as a call for black people to define their own goals, to lead their organizations. So it was really looking to um, celebrate and emphasize black culture and, and, and society, and rather than looking to become more white or, you know, integrate into white society, it was a celebration of black society through black nationalism. This inspired the band's aforementioned members to join the Panthers in the first place, to be a part of the revolution. Joining a band was not even a thought during their early years in the group. Instead, they performed the monotonous tasks that were expected from all rank-and-file Panthers, 
regardless of singing ability. One of these tasks included preparing issues of the Black Panther for distribution, made a little more fun by singing the day's popular music. The eventual Lumpen members would then put other words to the popular songs, Michael Torrance revealed in an interview. We would be singing what we called revolutionary songs to encourage us in the struggle. So if you understand the history of America and you understand America's uncom like uncomfortable history of not wanting black men to be armed, having this organization emerge that openly uh, advocates for violence while carrying large guns, um, it really becomes a media sensation in many ways. So their message is lost because their image is so fearsome in American society. Noticing the effect the group singing had on fellow Panthers, the party's Minister of Culture, Emery Douglas, approached Willem Calhoun and asked him to make a few songs, intending to spread this energy to the general public. Douglas also realized that the Panthers could utilize these tunes to disseminate their beliefs past a local printing shop in San Francisco, where they produced the paper. Shortly after, the group would have their first performance at a small festival nearby. With the rhythm of James Brown and the message of Malcolm X, the group was a hit among regular folk and party leaders alike, with Chief of Staff David Hilliard describing the average Panther event and its corresponding lump and concert as a way for people to be entertained but also educated. After their first impromptu performance, with the help of party leadership, the quartet could buy the equipment they needed. They formed a diverse backup band called the Freedom Messengers to complement their singing talent. Now a legitimate entity within the party, the Lumpen would perform as an opening act for the Panthers' famous activists. As Douglas expected, the music energized the people and got them in the revolutionary state of mind that would only be further honed in by the likes of Kathleen Cleaver or Elaine Brown. The popularity of the group would only continue to rise following these events. Their lyrics and vivid choreography continued to spread the Panthers' theme of revolution in a digestible way. It was in the style of entertainment that people listened to every day. However, this progress pales in comparison to the growth that would soon occur. In August of 1970, just a few months after they sang together for the first time, the Lumpen recorded two songs, No More and Free Bobby Now, which were pressed up as a 45 RPM record. Once again, everyone from Black Panther supporters to the people in charge of the whole operation were impressed. The record was allotted full-page ads in the Black Panther. The band became performing nationwide, anywhere from Oakland to Philadelphia alongside other Panthers, never straying away from its original cause of promoting the party's ideologies. As Torrance put it himself, we never did it to get famous, we never did it to get rich. We did it because we really wanted to do something for our people and make a change. The story of the Lumpen reached its climax in November of 1970 in New Haven, Connecticut, a far cry from their start in the Bay Area. However, it was the home of Panthers Bobby Seale and Erica Huggins, who were imprisoned there as they awaited trial on a murder charge. Huey Newton said that you need to speak, basically speak to the oppressor in terms which the oppressor understood. So, in many ways, they would argue that their reaction and response to the brutality that black people are experiencing in American society. So you have to remember that these are individuals who, for the most part, had family members, ancestors who were coming from the South, who experienced the lynching, the, the, the brutality. Um, the Black Panther movement would probably argue that it was in response to police brutality of, of the time. So how are you going to respond to a society that is constantly mistreating you or is violent against you while well, violence is begetting violence? 
Just when you think that it cannot get any worse in this world, something... ...is here that the group truly represented all that it was created to be, a revolution in the form of music. Despite FBI warnings and a heavy police presence at the scene, the Lumpen played the hits off their lone record, belting out themes of freedom and possibility for all who dared to show up. It was heard by Seal and Huggins, as well as many other prisoners, who shouted back, Right on, sing the song. Right on, power to the people. Throughout that winter and into the following spring, the Black Panthers continued to feature them at major party events. However, as the Lumpen's popularity reached its height, the Panthers as a whole were nearing their lowest point. St. Joseph's prep teacher Leo Vaccaro will explain the split that occurred between leading Panthers Huey Newton and Eldridge Cleaver, which ultimately led to the demise of the party. So obviously a lot of people watched on live TV the split take place and, uh, you know, of course, like the conversation was something that was really dramatic and something that would have been noticeable to anyone following the Black Panthers and of course the people who were in the group itself. It was even reported in early March in the New York Times in an article on March 7th of 1976 about this clash between Newton and Cleaver. So it was national news. As FBI programs continue to drive party leadership apart, the group entered its most tumultuous period. The very next day after the newspaper article appeared, so the same week as this televised split of the Black Panthers, a bunch of people in suburban Philadelphia, including a couple college professors, broke into an FBI field office in Media, Pennsylvania, and they took over a thousand classified documents out of those offices. And they started over the next few months uh, to release those documents to the press. And what was eventually discovered is now what we know as co Intel Pro, this secret illegal operation that the FBI was taking uh, under the leadership of J. Edgar Hoover. Following Huey Newton's directions, the Lumpen members were assigned new positions within the party and performed for the last time together on May 23, 1971. A few days later, Calhoun, the band leader, left the Panthers altogether. Then, although no longer an official party unit, the other three members played sporadically until they eventually left as well. From the day the group began to sing in Black Panther offices, up until their headlining performances and final days together, the Lumpen had one goal in mind. Although there is no doubt that their dance moves and rhythm were second to none, their overall mission was to communicate the thinking of the Black Panthers and the greater ideas of Black Power. Lumpen, yeah. band, Black Panther. Get out of here. We'll continue the history of the labor movement in Hawaii next uh, revisit Lumpen. Remember, if one person gets a part dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table negotiating. 
not a friend of labor. México no hay dos, y como San Jalisco tampoco. For over 40 years, the Ibarra family has been serving up the very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Enchiladas, tacos, chilaquiles, a birria to die for. How about your favorite American dishes? They got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco, corner of 20th and South Ness in the very heart of the mission. Come on down to San Jalisco where the food tells you you're in Mexico. <laughs>
Thank <laughs> you. 